Right, before we get talking about chasing ghosts, there's one thing regarding this film that must be addressed first and foremost. And it is the line with which Walter Day somehow manages to out-ego Billy Mitchell, despite being one of the more humble guys in this whole scene. And that line is when he says, I sometimes feel guilty with the video game stuff when it would be more beneficial to the world to pursue my music and finish my novels. (laughs) Which I believe was plural, novels. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. uh, It's it's not helped by the considerable amount of Walter Day's music that we get to be exposed to in the I'll say this. He's managed to prove that with nothing but an acoustic guitar, it's only quasi-impossible to be your own backing band. (laughs) I mean, I don't know if Boo-Boo-Ba-Ba-Ba-Boo-Boo-Ba is a song. (laughs) (coughs) No, it's, um... Yeah, he's a... You admire the confidence, right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. He's he's full of what we would call get up and go. He's got spunk. Moxie. Yeah. Some of the pizzazz. The old (laughs) ah-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha. Oh, dear. What a film, though. Yeah, right? And... uh, What were you going to say? I was going to say, when do you want to talk about that scene you showed me that sadly was not in the final release? Uh, Okay, yeah, I mean, well, yeah, we can, we can, I guess, front load with that. Why not? Why make the people wait? So yeah. the, the, this is the version of the film that we watched, uh, which is available on Amazon and I guess is the final cut of the film, is not the version of the film that I had seen previously uh, many, many times, <laughs> uh, which was apparently a pre-release uh, review screener copy. Uh, that has like about four minutes, give or take, of additional content in it. Uh, it also has a whole lot of, uh, speaking of ambition and, mm. and people with a lot of confidence in Moxie, uh, the documentary filmmakers had a whole bunch of licensed music that I guess they thought that they were going to be able to get the rights to for inclusion in the film. Oh. Uh, oh, yeah. None of which makes it into the film, but uh, they recorded sound-alike tracks for all of it. Mm-hmm. So, like, I recognize all of the music as what it's supposed to represent at that moment, uh, but it is not the original song. That was kind of interesting. Uh, and this this short, like, sequence that I showed Jim was excised <laughs> completely out of the film and I'm not sure if it's for <laughs> – there's two reasons it could have happened. I want to believe it's because of licensing. I want to believe it's because of licensed music because it ends with a musical sting. Yeah. Uh, I that's... have a feeling it was to uh, maybe take the age rating down a peg or two. <laughs> that is also the possibility. So uh, this this sequence is one of the main reasons I wanted Jim to see this film. And I was gutted to discover that it didn't make it into it the final cut. It would have perfected. It would have perfected the experience. I'm sad it wasn't. I'm glad I saw it now. 
Yeah. Um, it it involves Robert Merchek, who, if you are new to the show, we're we're quite taken by Robert Merchek. We're He's quite a delight. Fond of him. He's amazing. He was, he was the referee in uh, King of Kong. Yes. The uh, guy with the glasses um, who watched all the videotapes and strengthened his arm and wrist while he watched the videotapes. And he wore a Doom 3 shirt, which I was delighted by the fact he's wearing the exact same shirt in this one. It makes a return, yeah. I, I Both scenarios in which he wears this shirt are brilliant, in my mind. I'm ignoring the obvious one in that he just thought that shirt was cool and wore it for two films. In my mind, either he never takes it off... <laughs> And that's his only shirt. He he patters around in nothing but a Doom 3 shirt. <laughs> or the other one is both film crews were filming at the same time. Well, they they were. Uh, I mean, not at exactly the same time. Right, uh, yes. <laughs> I know they were filming um, within the same sort of calendar dates. Yeah. But I like to think that on the same day, he <laughs> turned and was complaining the whole time, which is what he likes to do, complaining about the amount of time he spends doing things. <laughs> Um, while loving doing them, yeah, uh, like it's not, it's not an asshole when he complains. He just he has this sort of dour voice, yeah, um, that make a little Eeyore-ish kind of tone that makes it sound like he's really annoyed by the things he chooses to do. <laughs> um, but yeah, I like to imagine that he was complaining about there not being enough space in his apartment for two film crews. But you know, he's got his clean Doom Three shirt on. He ain't calling them back tomorrow. Well, and, and, and let's talk about why there might not be enough space in his home <laughs> in Brooklyn for two film crews. Uh, where he lives with his parents, this should be noted. Um, yeah, not in, to make fun of him, but for context. Yes, this is for context. What, what we're about to speak. And, and I, I mean, he, he takes care of his parents, uh, seemingly. Yeah. Like, uh, this is not, you know, and, and I get the sense that, like, he's... He is the proto Brooklyn hipster in that he just grew up there and was there and lived through Brooklyn pre hipster and now mm. just fits in. Which is kind of, well, I mean, as much as a guy like Robert Merchek could probably fit in anyway. He was a hipster before it was cool. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> He's a real hipster's hipster. Yeah. Uh, but in, in Robert Merchek, this, this bit of cut thing really adds to his life because we get to discover his other great passion, which yeah. is art collecting. And he insists on calling it art. He does insist on calling it art. He insists that it's valuable. Um, I don't know if something is valuable simply because you have spent a lot of money on it. Up to $14,000 on one particular commission. Uh, yeah, he estimated that there was something like, I think, $300,000 worth of art there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he sold can't... company stock to get the the, late, the commission he <laughs> shows on the film. Which is, I guess, uh, the best. I mean, should we just describe what this piece of art is? Because this is the way that they introduce what his art collection consists of. Yes, and they spend a long time building it up. And you're sat there. Knowing it's gonna be good, yeah, you know it's gonna be good. It's gonna be something amazing, As and it is. He's, he's peeling away <laughs> paper and shrink wrap very delicately with such care and attention, 
And and he's describing that he, you know, he commissioned this artist. It was based on a work he'd done previously or he had attempted to do something previously and he wanted him to try it again. And the guy was receptive to it, you know, and it's this whole thing. And it is a a woman <laughs> naked with her legs in a V up vertically <laughs> exposing mm-hmm. her vagina. For our pleasure. For our pleasure. With boobs out, a finger definitely exposed to her pleasure. A finger pulling down her lower lip, and he makes a point to point out the mole as an imperfect. This mole that makes this woman utterly gorgeous, as yeah. the imperfection that this artist always puts an imperfection into every piece he does because no piece is perfect. Yeah, but only one. He only ever puts one. Just the one. on the. <laughs> The figures he draws. So, yeah, this woman, stockings on, if I recall correctly. Yes. Um, Detail work. Very classic pin-up look to her features. Uh, and uh, quite There's a juicy vagina. detail work for fantasizing all around, you know, that he's pointing out that you can't see because he's got plastic covering the and art. You can't get a good get of it. Can't have a good look. But you can tell. I mean, it's a it's a suitably engorged vajayjay. Um, <laughs> Glistening, she, she one ecstatic. might say. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's... Yeah, yeah, it's like an umbungo box down there. It's it's full of juice, uh, and he he points out that because the you know the legs are spread upwards in a V, he does point out you can hold it upside down, so that she's you know bent over looking between her legs to. And it to appears show to be a completely different piece of art. Yeah, it's transformative work. Uh, he you know he he has transcended the limits of of a piece of art, which is art. It is and art. Then, it is art. And then he shows us the rest of his collection. None of it's on his wall. No. None of this art is on his wall. Like, here's the thing, right? No problem with it whatsoever. None, of none. It's stunning work. Like, Great work. I, I and, admire it. I love it. porn anyway, right? I, no. I, I'm, all, I'm all fine with pornography, whatever. The insistence that it's art. Like I'm not, I'm not the kind of guy who will point to my, you know, my Mysterio toys and say these are figurines. The toys, the toys. I've got toys all over my fucking office. I'm not gonna call them art, and I'm not gonna keep them secluded in a little folder, which just looks like a discreet, a, a discreet wank stash. <laughs> if, we're, if we're perfectly honest, it looks like a wank stash. <laughs> it does. Oh, he has some, you know, these binders. That he's flipping through. <laughs> he's got binders full of women. <laughs> it's so true. Merchak Romney. <laughs> now there's a ticket I could get behind. <laughs> Come on, 2020, make it happen. That's right, Robert. Give us a call. I'll manage your campaign. My uh, God. I no, mean, and, and it's, all very well done stuff. It is. It is well, you know, there's, there's uh, you know, work that uh, seems to be done by the, the artist. Uh, so some Lady Death work in there and, you know, a lot of comic artist work. And, uh, you know. But it couldn't lot. be more perfect. It could The delivery of this, the framing, the build-up <laughs> no. and the anticipation and the, okay, I knew it was going to be good, but I didn't know it was going to be that graphic. Just, <laughs> it's Perfect. It is the perfect two minutes and change that could have been in a film, and I'm sad. It. I get why it wasn't. I'm really sad it wasn't. There is a a slight. There's one other just accent juxtaposition. I think that truly, truly makes it. <laughs> it's when he he holds up 
<laughs> I can't even. <laughs> he holds up a production still of Christopher Lambert in Highlander. <laughs> he does. I forgot about the Christopher Lambert. Just in the middle of all the tits. <laughs> I... He was painted like one of his French girls. <laughs> oh my God. I think, yeah, it's just got Christopher Lambert in amongst all of these buxom ladies whose breasts are exposed for our pleasure. Christopher Lambert exposed for our pleasure. <laughs> it's just a production photo of him in the yeah. tartan. <laughs> And then to top it all off is just the punchline where it's like, you know, it's art, like like animal photography. Like wildlife photography, which I, don't, I haven't I gotten haven't, into yet. Yeah, I haven't started on any of that yet. And then change to the, and you know, another scene. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. That is, that is flawless filmmaking. There isn't a mole added to that. That oh. is perfect. I hope there's a DVD somewhere and that this is a bonus, like bit in there no but i mean it would be a crime against god if if it wasn't included in a release of this somewhere for the uh, public's consumption if 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 any of the producers or people involved in making this somehow wind up listening to this podcast i apologize for for repeatedly over the years viewing your far superior original cut but i'm not sorry yeah i'm not and, and I hope you found a way to get that out to the world. Because you know it was gold. You had it in there for a reason. Yes, you knew exactly what you were doing. <sighs> I love Robert Murchak. I want a documentary focused on him. He's amazing. Uh, yeah, he, he absolutely could be the subject of his own, of his own documentary. Yeah. His life. Interesting. Sorry. His life just seems rich and interesting yeah. for a guy yeah. who, you know, is sort of, I mean, let's let's admit it. He's a bit awkward and, and you know, has this kind of behind. It, it just sort of makes you wonder about the people you see on the street and what's in their homes. Like, yeah. Do, yeah. do they have stacks and stacks of, of porn that they've paid an outrageous amount of money to accumulate? R- rhythm artistry. Yeah. Yeah. You just don't know who's who's living in your neighborhood. And that's... Next time you see someone walking down the street in a Doom 3 shirt, think to yourself, that might be the most interesting man in the city. Yeah. You just it might be. No, because you, nobody took the time to ask. Nobody, yeah. Not until a documentary crew came <laughs> along and said, show us your porn. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, uh Yeah. Yeah, so this is Chasing Ghosts. Uh, it's a 2006 film uh, about players in the competitive arcade game scene circa The highly anticipated sequel to Chasing Amy. <laughs> I've never seen Chasing Amy. I think that's the one Askew Universe film I've never watched. I saw it a long time ago. It's all right. Yeah. Yeah. It's all right. It's all right. From what I remember, it's all right. It had some funny bits in it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like most of most comedies. Yeah. Have a funny yeah, bit or two. Yeah, some funny bits. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, um, Chasing Ghosts, though, unlike Fistful of Quarters, King of Kong, um, no real story to it. It really is just a more straightforward, like, here are these people. Yeah. And the games they played and, 
and everything. Like, there are a couple of little narrative threads kind of in it. Um, it, it there's an interesting sort of B story about two of these people who uh, <laughs> haven't spoken in a very long time because they had a falling out. And that's, that's like one little encapsulated story. But for the most part, they're sort of talking about the history of them having this dream of being professional competitive video game players. Yeah. And, and which, what happens to that dream? Because we, we spoke about that during the King of Kong podcast, about how competitive gaming now is a huge thing, a big ticket item and, and very much a, a lucrative business mm-hmm. where these, uh, you know, professional gamers are making unbelievable amounts of money and you see some of these people who really i mean it's hard to say they were ahead of their time because they were as big as you could probably get back then but they were trailblazers no yeah i mean that's the thing trailblazers who will never see a fraction of the money that's in it now yeah a fraction because todd rogers ain't living in a luxury apartment no, uh, no, Todd Rogers. Todd Rogers has lived a life. Yes. <laughs> um, there is a scene in this. I don't know if you've seen the movie Hereditary, Conrad. I have not. There is a scene in Hereditary where a woman is at, like a grief counseling group kind of thing, like a bereavement uh, group therapy, mm. and just unloads her life and the tragedy and the death and the misery that's in it. And she. It's a very long scene, a very long monologue with the camera just focused on her. It's a brilliant film, by the way, highly recommended. And she just basically info dumps a fucked up life. And then everyone else in the group is just dumbfounded. This this scene in, in Chasing Ghosts, as Todd Rogers recounts his life, is exactly like it. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sat there thinking, fucking hell. And it's it's interesting because like this film, you know, this is now ten years old, you know, and you think about how much like, even back then we could see that competitive video game esports that was starting to really become a thing. You know, the fighting game community was growing. Um, we were we were seeing Counter Strike uh, start to become a thing. Um, that landscape even then it seemed like they'd missed a train yeah and i mean there's even a scene in this that is oddly reminiscent of pixels with adam stanger uh-huh. where they literally complain about their arcadey way of life being overtaken by more modern games that they didn't like yeah it's uh it's fast i saw someone who uh was talking about having watched the film uh, ahead of the show on Twitter, commenting that there's, like, this is the point of the film where, like, never so quickly have they turned against the subjects of a film as they did in that moment. Because it it is kind of fascinating how just, like, the derision that they have towards modern games. um, Oh, yeah, they were like, you know, oh, do you want to see a... a Guy with a lion head fighting a. Di- I'm like, yes. Yes, that was yes, my I response do. too. I want to see that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's it is it is an interesting. It's much more intimate than uh, King of Kong is. Mm-hmm. Um, it it paints a portrait of these people's lives more than a portrait of events. 
even though it does go through historical events to some considerable detail. Uh, yeah. and, and it is it is a history more than um, more than King of Kong's examination of what, what would have been a modern event. Yeah, um, and Billy Mitchell, who is in it, has a, a you know not. He's not the centerpiece. No. In fact, he's something of a bit player in this film. Yeah. Um, but he does say one thing about... He's talking about them compiling a record book. And he says that, you know, for these achievements, for this history to not be recorded is sinful. It's typical flair for the dramatic. But he's... I In that moment, I was like, no, no, that's that's an adequate way of putting it. Um for a documentary like this not to happen, in fact, for us to not have a glimpse at these truly interesting people with just a very strange um, sort of entry into notoriety that they've had and for the the trails that they blazed, I think it would be a, a crime to not have a record of who these people are. Not just what they're... Com- not just the numbers on the page, not just their scores. A documentary like this should happen. Because yeah. these people do deserve a record of who they were. Because that, to me, is way more interesting, way more fascinating than the games they played, even. Mm-hmm. You know, that they achieved these high scores is incredible. But I feel like the people who achieved them are even more incredible. Yeah, without the context of who those people are, it, it, they're literally just numbers on a page. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think it's a pretty well-composed documentary. Um, it does jump around a lot, uh, which is not necessarily great. Um, I think there's some structural challenges, but it, it does tell a fascinating story about fascinating yeah. people. Um, and that's and really it's what got, you want. It's got a good dose of Roy Schilt in it as well. Oh, man, does it have a great dose of Roy Schilt. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, we'll get into it here in a second. The three highlights for me uh, of this film are, are Roy Schilt, Todd Rogers, and and Robert Murchek, and and yeah. it, and 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 yes, that's largely colored. I think Robert Murchek probably would take a backseat to someone else were it not for the cut footage that I've seen, because <laughs> that just yeah. elevates him all the way up to the top. But he would have been a highlight if that was in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I agree on Sh- um, Schilt, Todd Rogers, Mister Activision, who in this film is just Mister. Tragic Vision. Well, Mr. Tragic Vision, which is that's a great name for him. I mean, his story after after this, we'll we'll I'll tell a little more about his story. His oh, story hasn't stopped. Yeah, it gets sadder. Yeah, it, it does. gets sadder. Um, but the other highlight for me, I guess, would be. Um, I mean, Steve Sanders is is very interesting in this. He's quite candid about what he did. He is. Um, yeah. But then there's that other guy who laughs for such a long time in one scene. Can't remember his name now. I had the glasses and at one point slaps his own head, but in a way that's far too hard um, for it to have just been an oh. expression. Like he really hates himself. Yeah. Um, but there is one scene, and I wish I could remember it now. I watched this yesterday. I should have fucking watched it today. Um, but yeah, he, there's a scene where he's just laughing for too long for it, it to be real laughing. Um, but yeah yeah great film very interesting film Um, I suppose let's get cracking with it yeah let's do it 
Our tale begins in Ottumwa, Iowa, with the voice of Walter Day describing a dream in which a creature asked him, Quick, who wrote the famous novel by Herman Melville, and what was the author's name? And he says it's a very complicated answer. Of course it is. And I can't think of any better introduction to who Walter Day is. (laughs) Than that... He is a man who seems to, like, both incredibly focused and unfocused. Yes. He has many, many, many interests that he is deeply engaged in over the course of his life. Um, but we'll get to that. In a montage, we're told of the peaking arcade scene of the early 1980s, the myriad popular games at the time and the Twin Galaxies arcade that Walter Day ran. Uh, But the story of competitive arcade gaming actually begins with a man named Steve Jurassic, who scored 23 million points on Defender. And when Walter Day contacted Williams, the manufacturer of Defender, asking if this was a world record, they didn't know. And so Day volunteered to keep track of such things going forward. And I love the way... He puts this in the film. He says, I don't know if it was just divine providence, but they put their faith in me to do this. And I think that that's one perspective. I think that that's Walter Day's perspective. It's it's what I would call a unique point of view. Uh, Because I can very easily see another perspective, such as, you know, one from a corporation that has now found someone who will just deal with any phone calls that they get yeah. about this going forward. Yeah. Like, he's in provided mind, them an answer. In my mind, I'm seeing a corporate executive with uh, shutter shades, because it was the 80s. <laughs> Cigar, just, yeah, sure, kid. You're in charge of the records. Yeah. <laughs> Fill your boots, kid. And then he just goes back to talking on a massive brick-sized phone, because it was the 80s, and never thinks about him again. Yeah. While Walter Day thinks, Wow. They've invested so much in me. Yes, that's uh, that's exactly it. Um, pretty soon, Walter's taking upwards of 50 calls a day from players that are trying to place their names on the Twin Galaxy scoreboard that has been created. Yeah. So Meanwhile, meanwhile, the corporate executive is watching The Running Man and having the time of his life because it's the 80s. <laughs> Snorting cocaine that he got from a beach in Miami in the 80s. Uh, After a credit montage that shows us the documentary subjects that we're going to be introduced to back in the early 80s and now, we open on Joel West driving with a berserk motherboard in the back of his car. Uh, Now, Joel... uh, became introduced to video games after the tragic death of his father, to whom he really looked up to, and uh, then discovered Berserk, which is a maze game with a uh, where you play as a humanoid that gets attacked by robots. They do this kind of interesting CGI represent, representation of what Berserk's gameplay yeah. is. It's not intricate CGI, but it's cute. Yeah, it's a cute little animation that they throw in, and... Um, he became competitive uh, and, and went so far as to map out every possible room configuration that the game could have. Uh, something like 66,000 rooms, I think he said, which is, like, ridiculous. Yeah. 
Uh, but that's that... something we soon learn about a lot of these high tier players is they do a lot of homework. Yeah, there's a there's a tremendous amount of dedication that goes into. I mean, well, you know, and this is the, to those of us today looking at the speedrunning community and and mm-hmm. and the and the competitive gaming community. I mean, it's the, it's the same thing. Like they will dig around in every aspect of a game to find anything yeah. that will provide it's... them an edge. It's more than just reflexes and natural talent at a game. Like these people do, like math and analytics, pattern recognition, and just laborious study. Yeah. And uh, so he quickly becomes a score leader in Berserk, but needed someone to compete with. And this leads us to Ron Bailey, who is a chemical engineer, uh, quite a few years. Uh, Joel Sr. He's a ham radio enthusiast, and he became similarly attracted to Berserk after being laid off from his job. And the two of them developed this relationship that's, you know, almost a father figure. Joel looks at Ron as a father figure, as almost like a replacement for his lost father in some ways. Uh, And and it's, it's sweet, but awkward. Like, because even in the speaking of it here at this point, you could tell that there's some tension in that relationship, which is interesting. Um, And the two of them describe how players become uh, connected with the machine as they play. Uh, There's a sort of intimate connection that happens when you reach a certain level of ability at these machines that you can anticipate everything it's going to do and... You know, it, it, it's flow, it would be the best way to put it, is that you're just so intensely focused on what you're doing that everything else falls away. Um, you know, we, that's something I think a lot of people can be familiar with uh, in a lot of other applications. Yeah. We then go to Calgary, where we're introduced to Chris Steele, also known as Darren Olson. Uh, he changed his name sometime after his gaming career uh, ended, and uh, it, it, he changed his name to Steel based on the '80s private detective series starring Pierce Brosnan, Remington Steel. Oh uh, yeah. So very. You know, if you're gonna go that far, you might as well add the Remington, <laughs> right? Chris Steel. Mm. Uh, I mean, yeah, as like an action man style line of figures, I could buy a Chris Steel. But, you know, you should have called off something like Ajax Steel or something. Right, you could have gotten really If you're going to go creative. with Steel, you know, go the whole hog. Don't half-heart it. Don't, when you can pick all of your names in the world, don't pick a Chris. <laughs> uh, and uh, Kent Ferries, uh, these two encountered each other uh, competing for scores on a Space Invaders machine and eventually teamed up, taking on the uh, initials WIZ. Uh, and plastering high scores all over Calgary. Um, And they start to talk about novel ways that they found to play games. Uh, In particular, they focus on track and field, which is basically it's a button-tapping game. It's a button masher. You try to mash a button as quickly as you can to increase the speed at which your character on screen moves, and then when they jump, they get more distance on their long jump. Yeah. Um, and so first they describe 
the double flap, which is a technique that joust players often use as well, where you use your two, your index and middle finger, uh, both on a single button, tapping alternately in order to get more taps in than you could if you were just tapping up and down with one. Uh, then they introduce a pencil. Uh, and what it is is they tape down part of a pencil in between two buttons or near a button, and then they take another pencil and they rock this other pencil on top of the taped down one to rapidly tap out. And as they're doing this, this is intercut with a guy who is a video game historian or a coin-op game historian, and he is also talking about these techniques. And then the whiz kids take it to a whole new level. Yes. They take it, in my opinion, too fucking far. (laughs) (laughs) Those mavericks. They introduce an electric carving knife. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Which they use with a dimmer switch to... Find the precise rate at which they can maximize the button press of the knife as it slides back and forth along the button or the plastic guard at the back of the knife. Yeah. And the game historian is just like, what? Yes. His mind was blown in that moment. Absolutely amazing. Uh, but that, that I this... mean, I was wondering at this point, though, like... Is this not cheating? Well, how is it not? How is it not cheating, right? And and like I admire the ingenuity, but mm-hmm. it doesn't go against the spirit of the game. And that's something that's going to come up again later in the in the documentary. Yeah. Uh, so it's it, it it's kind of curious and humorous at this point, but that we're going to get to see another side of this kind of play later. Um, now more montage footage follows as the uh, players discuss the competitive motivation to beat the machine and how, uh, over time, they would develop crowds of players in arcades that would be in awe watching them play the games that they were good at. So it's 1982, and Life magazine is doing a year-in-pictures issue that's capturing the culture of the time. So Walter Day arranges for a group of the top-scoring players to come to Otumwa uh, two twin galaxies to be in a photo together. And the players reminisce about making the trip uh, at this point, and they provide commentary on how boring Iowa is. Uh, this is also something that... This is the first time I'll bring this up, and I'm going to bring it up a couple other times throughout, because as I said before, this is the uh, final cut and not the original cut I heard. The original cut that I heard had all that licensed music. Uh, and we get these sound-alikes at this point. So at this point, as they're talking about a, a, a Tumwa, uh, is the first of several points throughout the film that we get to hear uh, Talking Heads' naive melody. Which is my all-time favorite Talking Heads song. And now I get this pale reflection of it here. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I know what it is, and it's fine. It's fine. But the music was a much bigger part at that point. And, and uh, you know... And Iowa's boring as fuck. Uh, they they describe the highway map of Iowa as a cross. Yeah, just two lines. <laughs> uh, Billy Mitchell starts cracking his knuckles while comparing himself to Babe Ruth. Oh, good old Billy. It's good to have you back. 
classic yeah. Billy here. Uh, this... Again, he's not in it much, but when he's in it, he provides enough evidence that the stuff in King of Kong was not all that fabricated when it comes to his attitude. And this is another instance where the licensed music that they had selected, is, it's saying, it's making a specific message. The choice was was for a reason. Uh, the sound of like you're listening to is very much not the stroke. You familiar um, with the stroke? Um, I don't think. Oh, so. if you're in the game, the stroke's the word. Uh, it's it's a song about, uh, and I can't remember the the performer's name now, and that I'm thoroughly embarrassed by. It, but it's a song about the record industry. And uh, and marketing of artists and and how the record label will just, you know, stroke off a performer uh, and tell them that they're fantastic and market them Uh as such. Um, And here's Billy Mitchell doing Mm -hmm. his uh, uh, hair regimen while he explains what's required for a perfect game of Pac-Man, which is eating every dot, eating every bonus item eating every ghost with every pellet that you eat. Uh, it's got one of my favourite lines in it, this part, when he talks about the tunnel technique, where you uh, basically trick the AI into having three other ghosts going back and forth between the central tunnel in Pac-Man, with only, then you only have to deal with the one chasing you. And as he describes this, he's like, you know, the only time you deviate from this pattern is you go get the fruit, and then you send them right back into the tunnel. Then there's a pause. Then with a somber, menacing voice, they spend their whole lives in the tunnel. <laughs> it is dark. He is imprisoning ghosts, and he's loving it. He's uh, the jigsaw of Pac-Man. Uh, so he explains what's required to do it, and then how everybody said he couldn't do it. And of course he did it. Because he's Billy fucking Mitchell. He's fucking Billy Mitchell. He's got all the medals. And even his best friend Steve Sanders can't help but give him a hearty fuck you. <laughs> after he misquotes Star Wars. And I don't know if that was, you know, because he was misquoting Star Wars or just because he was a dick. Either way, it's the sort of thing you would give a fuck you to Billy Mitchell for. Um, and after many remarks about his mighty mullet, Todd well, there's Rogers. a lovely little montage of people describing his hair. I actually think they cut that down from the original version. <laughs> I think there was more of it. <laughs> um, but we cut to Todd Rogers disagreeing with the notion that Billy is the most famous video game player. While Roy Schilt, oh <laughs> sweet, sweet Roy Schilt, casts aspersions on other players' ability to get laid while wearing right. his red ridiculous Mr. Awesome costume. Yeah, it kind of looks like um, if if a child tried to cosplay as Sergeant Bilko and fucked it up. <laughs> I want to talk about Roy Schilt for a moment. Yeah, let's talk about Roy. Now, people online get confused over what toxic masculinity means. <laughs> and they often think it's just an attack on masculinity itself rather than it being descriptive of a certain type of destructive manly attitudes that can harm men. Yeah. You know, Roy Schilt, for anyone confused as to what toxic masculinity is, Roy Schilt is it. He is obsessed with manliness. He 
doesn't seem to have a very good life himself because he spends it being bitter well, about it's interesting. not getting laid and men not having balls. Everything he says during this film relates in some way to having sex with a woman and it's not in any positive context whatsoever. It's in a weirdly obsessive, angry context. Yes, and it's notable that... As opposed to everybody else that this film, uh, every other subject of this film, we see their life to some extent. Like, we see them doing something, they're describing their personal life, or they're describing their life outside of games, or, or any of that. We do not see any of that with Roy Schilt. No. All we're exposed to of Roy Schilt is what Roy Schilt wants to portray. And one thing he portrays is a man who has like makes fun of gamers for not getting laid and then talks about how much of a gamer he is with no sense of irony or joke or awareness of what he's doing. And Roy Schilt, now I don't know if it was specifically in this sequence uh, of, of Roy Schilt or a later one. I do believe, again, just based on my memory, uh, that there was a bit of stuff cut out of the Schilt material from the uh, original version of the film also. Uh, But Schilt is a fascinating uh, example of humanity. At one point... (laughs) That's uh, one way of describing it. Well, just because this is something that's not brought up in the film, but I don't know that we're ever going to get another opportunity to talk about Roy Schilt. So I feel like some additional context is required at, at now. Uh, in the film, they show some photographs that are included in his comic book of uh, him uh, with a woman. And it seems it's like a frame by frame photo comic of him undressing her. Uh, this was, I, I believe, part of some photos that uh, Roy Schilt sent to Playgirl. <laughs> Many years ago. Like, and the story goes that he took out a full-page ad in Playgirl to put his photo in the magazine. And then later sent the magazine to Madonna. <sighs> oh, dear. So. Like, now, that comic book. Yeah, and, it's not in this sequence, but in a later interview yeah, we'll, we'll, where he is, we'll talk yeah. about his comic a bit. But you're right. This 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 is the scene here. This sequence is the one that that positions who Roy Schilt is and really does give us a fantastic example of how to identify what toxic masculinity is because he's a personification of it. Um, yeah, you know, he just he's he he's clearly jealous of Mitchell's theme, uh, fame. Uh, he derides people who play pac-man he calls it a game for sissies oh yeah yeah uh, um bitches as well i think he yes calls them as well. uh he, missile command is clearly a superior game it's a macho game he refers to it uh, you know he says it has paramilitary and phallic associations and that makes it better for him yeah this this is a man who i believe is incredibly self-conscious about his own manhood it, but yes this is a guy who truly Thinks he seems to think about nothing else. Like everything relates to what what a man he is or could be. And yet, and yet, there is a startling self awareness and admission in this behavior from him. Like he is not deluded in any way. He's mm. wrong, 
but he's not deluded. Uh, he's his right. His main dispute and conflict with these people is that his missile command score has not been recognized by Twin Galaxies. And this has over the years escalated because he is a confrontational individual. And he claims that Walter Day and Bill Mitchell have a restraining order against him. Uh, he says that they believe that he threatened them. Um, Mitchell and Day won't address Schilt at all. Probably uh, the wise move there. Like, I, I don't blame either of them. Oh, no, I would not provoke this man in any way, shape, or form. Um, and... Uh, like his 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 need to be recognized escalates to him hiring a, an attorney and threatening legal action against Day and and Twin Galaxies over this dispute, but he's not under any illusions as to why he's doing it because he he straight up admits having the record is what makes him special. Yes, that was a particularly sad moment because. You're right. He he does admit it. I I don't know if I would agree that he's self-aware so much, because at no point does he say, "And I am sad." Well, I I like it's I all, think, well, I'm no, all I think, for, I, like I think he's replaced the sadness with the anger. Yeah, maybe. Um, it's just I. A lot of people, most people, I think, will want to be unique or special in some way. Most people want to be recognized for something. I know, you know, I do. I, I have a job which involves producing content for the public. Of course I would like recognition um, and to stand out. But I don't know. He presents it in honestly just a pathetic way. Yeah. And I don't think he is aware of how sad he is acting. Oh, yeah, it's no, I, I'm sorry. He's, acting. he's not aware of his place in the world. He's aware of who he is as a person. Uh, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's... Yeah, he's aware of who he is as a person. He's not aware that who he is as a person stinks. Yeah, he's, he's not, he's, he, he hasn't, it hasn't somehow gotten through to him uh, that it's not working for the rest of us. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, you know, I'm, I'm right on someone's side as far as them being angry if a legitimate score of theirs isn't recognized. Sure. But this is a man who made a comic book about his life has a video in which he tells men how to score some poontang and uh, likens everything to, you know, either it's manly, therefore good, or it's for bitches. Yeah. He's a bad man. Yet a man that I want to, like... I, I, I actually want to have a conversation with him. I don't know. Oh, I mean, I want a documentary all about him. Yeah. I want to know everything there is to know about this guy... And and there is like there are there are rabbit holes on the internet that you can travel down because he's been relatively vocal in the scene. Um, of course he has. So yeah, I, I can't imagine how many forums he's been banned from in his time. We next get to learn a little more about Walter Day. He's described as a dreamer. Um, he's 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 a, a Renaissance man, as Robert Burchek refers to him. Uh, his professional career has included oil sales uh, and collections of business cards and newspapers. There's v- video footage of him describing uh, this was 
I get what public access. I can't imagine where this was televised. Uh, him describing how to properly uh, care for a newspaper collection. Yep. <laughs> I mean, and he's a man of many passions. He really is a very all passionate of them man. slightly strange. <laughs> yes. But you know, stranger things have happened. And, but committed, and... like dedicated. He's, oh yeah. He's a hustler, and and he convinced the city of Ottumwa, and then the state of Iowa to proclaim Ottumwa the video game capital of the world. Which you can just say of a place. Right. Well, and I think... You can just say it. I think he is just a guy who is persistent and passionate that people look at and say, you know what, it's not worth it. Sure. And he gets his way. And I admire that. he's a little delusional. (laughs) I don't think it could always work. But uh, he's... Walter Day is incredibly charming and fascinating. He's got a passion and a commitment to things that get stuff done. Yeah, it gets gets something done. And maybe it never rises to a level that matches his grand vision of it. Oh, yeah, it might not be done successfully. But it will get done. Something gets done, and and it's something that you could look at and be proud of, I think. Yeah, I think so. I think Walter Day has had a life to be reflected upon fondly. I think he can, you know, when when it comes to be his time. And I hope he does. I think he would be right to look back to think, you know, I had a good one. I had a good run with a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, And and I, I, I think he probably will... I, I hope that he gets to maintain the optimism he has about the music career. Oh, right, like up that. to the bitter end. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. that, that would be the great tragedy in the end, is if Walter Day were broken. Oh, if he lost the song in his heart, yeah. I don't think the world would recover. No, no. Uh, in Florida, speaking of tragedy, mm. Todd Rogers shows us some photos of his spiders. Now, I was looking at this thinking, why the fuck wasn't this in King of Kong? They were at his house. <laughs> were they? Did they? I guess, did they shoot it at Roger's house? I believe there are scenes within, because I'm pretty sure I remember the, the retro consoles and things in King of Kong as well. Oh, so that could be. I believe they were in his house. But apparently they missed all of the spiders, and I don't know how you do that. Because the only the only time I remember Todd Rogers in King of Kong, because uh, I know Merchek had uh, showed a bunch of that stuff at his place, and they have similarly depressing <laughs> environments. Uh, yeah, but I th- one a bit more miserable than the other. Because the only time Rogers appear is appears in um, King of Kong that I'm aware of is when they are all uh, collected at the cabin uh, near Fun Spot to view the tape Billy Mitchell contributed, showing his yeah. million point oh, score. He, he was in that scene. Yeah, but I'm, I'm fairly certain. Possibly when they're discussing Roy Schilt, I think he has some opinions there. Um, and I'm fairly certain, I, mean, I could be entirely wrong, but I was fairly certain they did some, at least a couple shots, like interview sequences in his house. And maybe maybe they just took one look and said, no, this is too big. Like, we couldn't possibly. There's no way we could fit this character in with everything else we need to tell. We need to trust. I mean. <laughs> because. Yeah. 
Uh, it would distract because what I get the feeling once you start doing a documentary. Well, once you start doing a piece on Todd Rogers... Yeah, I think once you let start letting Todd Rogers speak, it all it just starts... the documentary. ...tumbling out, because uh, he very... No one would care about Steve Wiebe oh, if Todd Rogers said half the shit he does in this one. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. They have to, they have to keep Steve Wiebe sympathetic. Fucking king of the underdogs in Todd. I mean, I feel sad for him. Like, he's not had a good life. He is not. Uh, He looks like Jake the Snake Roberts, post-wrestling career. Yeah. Lives in a house composed... It's charitably charitably a house. Spiders and Sorrow are the two backdrops of his place we are the life the way they introduce us to they show us interior shots of the house with christmas decorations for a bit and then put up a title that says july of course they do just stick the boot in we all knew it was gonna be a summer month (laughs) we all knew it we didn't need the subtitle we know those christmas decorations are there all year round uh stick the boot in he, he he takes us to a flea market, describes it as one of the several flea markets that he regularly attends. Uh, he helps a, 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 an old, very white man to don a Native Which American... Which is saying something, because I believe that there are only white men in this entire film. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think everybody's pretty white. I mean, I don't... I, I mean, it's... Who knows? Uh, when I, was... I mean, they have a Native American in this scene. Well, that's... Oh, wait, no, they don't. Well... It's that old white man you were discussing. And, and, yeah, that's it. He's helping him put this Native American headdress on, and then the... the... Mm. <sighs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, the, the, the old white man then imitates a mid-20th century interpretation based on television of what a Native American greeting was. He raises his hand and says, how? Thank you. Yeah, yeah I think it's easier for you as, a, as an immigrant to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, I'm not going to do the voice and raise my fucking hand like that yeah. old man did. Yeah. Uh, I mean, no, I was talking about this with someone. Maybe it was my wife. Who raised the possibility that maybe Todd Rogers has a little Native American blood? I I don't want to... The old fucker wearing the hat didn't look like he did. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think... He was the whitest fucking man in America. That doesn't fix it for me one way or another. But, I mean, you know, it's it's very problematic. It's, It's strange. It's just strange. That man is so white that even though he most certainly died in the past 10 years, he still voted for Trump. (laughs) His ghost, his ghost wearing the headdress showed up. He crawled out of the grave wearing the headdress. Um, Yeah, yeah, and went straight to the polling booth (laughs) and then disintegrated into the dust. Um. Todd Rogers also has hundreds of spiders that he keeps in his house. Yeah. And and I can't overstate how many spiders... He had to dedicate an entire cupboard to keeping lots of spiders in there. And that's not the sum total of the spiders. It's a lot of spiders. That's just where, the I guess, the storage spiders go. 
He talks about feeding the spiders. He at one point shows us a photo of the spider of a spider eating a squirrel or a fighter, you know, like hole. Yeah, he described in quite lurid detail about the bits of the squirrel that were disappearing into the spiders. And you know, and this all makes sense. Well, he explains. <laughs> he gives us the origin story of his whole love of spiders. And it's basically revenge against the animal kingdom <laughs> because a bee stung him once. Yeah. He says a bee stung him once and then he got spiders to eat them. And I guess he's got it in for the squirrels now as well. Yeah, that'd be- Imagine that. Imagine revenge collecting spiders. <laughs> he also explains the game that he's arguably best known for, which is barnstorming. Um... Showing two pieces of scotch, how he uses two pieces of scotch tape to guide him when playing. Um, you know what? This I think was in King of Kong. I think they did show him doing this in that. I think, yeah, I think they showed him with Barnstorm, yeah. Yeah. Um, so his skill at games eventually leads to him being invited to appear for corporate events where he comments that, you know, like the big benefit for him was that they'd feed him. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. And it was said in a way that I think, you know, he was trying to say free food, I'm there. But the way he said it in the, you know, they'll feed him and the tone in which he said it almost suggested that if he didn't go to these events, he wasn't eating. <laughs> it, yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit rough. And it, it well, let's just say it's not going to get better for Todd Rogers, but we'll come back to him. Uh, Robert Murchek, our beautiful boy. Our, our, our paragon, uh, chief referee at Twid Galaxy. He lives in Brooklyn, and he explains his responsibilities to authenticate and record scores for the scoreboard. Uh, he has an enormous cat named Rusty that he watches them with for dozens of hours a week while also working a full-time accounting job 60 to 70 hours a week. Uh, he does the, the score record-keeping solely for the satisfaction um, you know, we have seen him do this before in King of Kong, but again, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, the man is so proud of his work. He's dedicated to it. Uh, he says there's no money in it, but it's the best job a gamer could have. I disagree. I 100%. It is the best job Robert Burchek could have as a gamer. Uh, he is, uh, I, I, I cannot imagine. Um, but, it, but again, you know, these are games that these people are passionate about. And, and I, I think that Merchek is probably just generally passionate about video games. And, you know, he shows us tapes. He's got tapes of like Grand Theft Auto Vice City, uh, scores. Yeah. He strikes me as, you know, a lot of the other ones strike me as very Adam Sandler and Pixels. Uh-huh. Um, whereas this guy, yeah, I mean, he's wearing a Doom 3 shirt. He clearly likes games. He doesn't just focus on the one or two because he's good at them. Yeah, the one he clearly likes games. Yes, even though he is very good at many oh, sure. old games. Um, yeah, yeah. But he's got a, a wider taste, more open mind about the medium, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. So, in North Carolina, we get to meet Leo Daniels. He's described as a widely talented player at many games, uh, but particularly at Asteroids, where he developed a strategy to leave one small asteroid on the screen 
thereby not having new asteroids spawn in uh, because he's progressed to a new level and just destroy the UFOs for more points. It's clever. It's very clever. Uh, we then see Leo's current life, hanging out in clubs, drinking, gambling with friends. Uh, he's described by uh, fellow competitor Sam Blackbird as a guy who always has an angle. He's always looking for oh, yeah. a way around the rules. And I want to give some advice to this guy. If you start any sentence with, I'm not saying I'm a pimp, <laughs> you're probably a pimp. Uh, yeah. Uh, he, Leo doesn't think he acts his age. Um, this is sort of illustrated by him playing with a dancing gerbil that plays kung fu fighting while smiling like an idiot. Uh, and then we get this t- this immediate contrast between this sort of kind of sleazy seeming guy and Steve Sanders, who lives in the heartland in, you know, in Kansas City, Missouri. And Steve was the Donkey Kong player who wrote the book on the game as a teenager. Uh, and we again hear the story uh, that we heard previously in King of Kong of Billy Mitchell challenging Sanders at the Life magazine shoot, uh, exposing that Sanders had lied about his scores. Um, I love Walter Day's innocence in this scene. Oh, yeah. Expressing shock that someone would lie about an achievement. Just... Yeah, just baffled. He couldn't believe that anyone would do it. Uh, and, and that the, yeah, just speaks to what a good person and trusting person that Walter He's Day is. He's too pure for the world. He really is. Uh, what a beautiful man. <laughs> I, I really... <laughs> I just I don't want his reality shattered. And, and, and I, I don't... There are men in the world... And then there's Walter Day, luxury man. Yeah. If we could all be Walter Day and, and have his perspective. Uh, the world would be a better place. I don't know that that's true. It, <laughs> but I do think it would be a place with less miserable people. Maybe. It only takes one bad actor then in that case, though. It could run roughshod over everybody. Oh, like, I, mean, I think the whole thing could f- would fall apart in the end. But, but you know, we'd watch it fall apart. In the apart. world of the Walter Days, the one Billy Mitchell is king. We would watch it all fall apart and be, you know, hopeful that, you know, it's, well, right around the corner. Well, we'd all be too busy working on our albums. Um... <laughs> uh, uh, so, Sanders wrote a letter uh, that we were shown the letter, and he, he reads a good portion of it, uh, that he admitted to his fraud and apologizing I mean, for it. He is humble and honest for a Christian lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he's a very Christian man. Um, and deeply so. Deeply He's so. He's the kind of man who has a crayon drawing on his wall that says Jesus rocks. Yes. And the church rocks. Couldn't think of any other cool hip uh, descriptions there. It's just rocks. He's, that's what the kid. That's what the youth are saying in it. Yeah, yeah. But he's very. You know, this whole thing somehow has had an effect on him, and um, and he's just a. This was a turning point, his his cheating exposure. Um, 
The players then reflect a bit on the state of Ottumwa, Iowa in 1982 as a small town where they were there and suddenly a very big deal. Um, they uh, People were coming to the arcade and then recognizing them and there were groupies um, and and there's like a, a half and a half thing going on where you, you have these these this group of people who were clearly having a very good time with all of this and then another group of people that perhaps did not get to enjoy all the same social benefits yeah and have a sort of almost sad reflection of missed opportunity. Like, they could have had that same fun time if they'd just been able to come out of their shell a little bit or or whatever. And uh, it's kind of a bummer. Uh, uh, one of them that's, that's like this is Mark Robichek, who uh, gets a little time in a spotlight here in the film. He took a very slow approach to Frogger. Um, he's a very methodical guy. Uh, they show him doing things like folding his shirts to demonstrate his precision, and <laughs> and uh, he loves himself some funky cold Medina. Uh, he has this interesting taste in music that is all very white guy appreciative. Like, it's all of these... Yeah, that makes sense. That you like that, you whitest person who ever lived. And, you know, I mean, <laughs> I love me some funky cold Medina. I like Toad Loke. Sure. But I accept that myself. You know, he, he's accessible to to uh, to that man. Yeah. It's, it's very... He's just an odd, awkward dude. <clears throat> um, we're then sh- shown footage of the 1982 Life magazine shoot as the players reminisce about how cold it was that morning and uh, talk a bit about that day specifically and how Walter Day chose not to be in the shot. Uh, instead, he watched from the sidelines, and he regrets it and would have stood there now, you know, given him a second chance, he would have stood there with his game of choice, which was make tracks. Um, almost all of the games in that t- time, or that Life magazine shot, uh, shoot, that photo, I recognize almost all of them, except uh, I think there's a Tutankhamun game that I'd never heard of in there. The rest of them are all pretty recognizable. Uh, I wouldn't have known Make Tracks either. What the fuck is that? Um, it's it's some kind of kicks meets uh, driving themed game, I believe. Um, you can read about it on Wikipedia. I did and then forgot it again. Uh, Billy Mitchell also looks incredibly stoned in this photo. Yeah. Like Stoned with his hickey on his neck. Which oh, they yes. zoom in on at one point yes. in the documentary just to let us know that he got off with one of the groupies. Yes, yes. Billy got sub. Well, good for you, Billy. Good for you. Uh, the players that then, then get to talk a bit about the sense of celebrity that followed them for a time as they were recognized in magazine, uh, recognized from the magazine shoot in arcades and, and they did some television appearances. Uh, Robert Burchek, God bless him, calls it the Sgt. Pepper's album of video games. Yeah, I take issue with that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even... Contextually, it's not even correct. No. Not even close. It is a strange... He's he's trying to think of, like, an iconic image. Yeah, he wants a a collection of, you know, luminaries that were brought together. Right. Um, That's not what the 
Sergeant Pepper album cover is. At all. No. It's a montage of fucking pop culture history shit. Like, it's it's not just... I. Uh, <laughs> it'd have been better off just saying that it was like the Travelling Wilburys or something. And, and I need to remember, I need to, at this point, remind viewers of the thing that the film is not going to tell us that puts all of this into context. Robert Murchek collects art. <laughs> throw that out there uh joel west reflects on the relationship that he had with ron bailey this is the uh the two gentlemen in uh, i believe it's north carolina uh who had the falling out um and uh but what were mentor you know father son figure thing going on between them playing berserk uh and he knows that daddy angle yeah notes that he made him a better and joel knows that that Bailey made him a better man and how he'd served as a mentor figure and probably wouldn't appreciate being called a father figure. Uh, and they each re- sort of relate a story that was their falling out where Ron approached Joel in a restaurant after having not seen each other for a little while and Joel's on a date and Ron humiliates him by saying he'd beaten his world record in Berserk. And following this, they do not speak for 20 years. Despite living 30 miles apart and having had this incredibly close relationship. A date. Yeah. Now, don't get me wrong. Not the coolest thing to do. No, it's a dick move. Yeah. It's a dick move. But, I mean, it's not what a blood feud starts with. (laughs) No. No. And I do kind of want to imagine... Rod Bailey walking in there and doing like a degeneration X suck it. <laughs> just old, this you know, middle aged engineer coming up to a guy in his late teens, early 20s. <laughs> just really leaving it to him. But oh, yeah, yeah, grinding the shit in his face because because that's the only point that's the only way in which this seems like all right dude you know what fuck you we're never talking again i am sure it wasn't like that i'm sure that you know these were you know two kind of they're emotionally sensitive men hiding behind you know masculinity again yeah and yeah. and it's fascinating because they're both looking for ways to relate to each other as men and and have an emotional connection and Joel is I mean he's he's so clearly a sensitive guy um this whole you know the more we talk about it the more of an indictment of of toxic masculinity I see this film as just that is the ghost they're all chasing it, oh, is the concept of manliness it's fascinating uh, these relationships and these people. It's such a good movie. Um, so they're going to be reunited in the course of this documentary. And so that's kind of one of the through line stories is reuniting these two people. Uh, and so the morning of this day, Joel packs up his broken berserk motherboard, uh, ruminating that John, as an engineer, might be able to fix it. And he heads to Ron's house. Cut to Miami. Bill Mitchell shares a similar relationship with uh, a man named Chris Ira, I believe it is, or Aira, uh, describing how their competitiveness pushed uh, him to succeed. It's interesting because um, this 
is the relationship I would have expected him and Steve Sanders to have. But Steve Sanders, I don't think, is a good enough player. Yeah. You know, and so uh, Sanders absolutely describes Mitchell as his best friend uh, multiple times in this film, in King of Kong. I think that's mutual. I think Bill considers Sanders his best friend. But but the the person he has the competitive relationship with is this Chris Ira, who we'd not seen before, and doesn't really speak much, but just gives off this I'm a dick vibe. <laughs> uh, and he also doesn't seem to have aged much um, as compared to some of the other competitors. There's a, a, a photograph of a younger Billy Mitchell, clearly younger Mitchell, you know, and maybe it's only 15 years. It's not like 20 years. But he's a clearly younger Mitchell standing next to a guy who is obviously Chris Ayers. Or Ayra. Chris Ayra. And then, you know, cut back. Mitchell has clearly aged in this time, still has the same look, but has aged. Chris is the same dude, has the same haircut. It's like this bowl cut thing that he's got going on. You know know who kind of... He's like the Igor to Bill Mitchell's Dr. Frankenstein. In a way, just sort of sitting there perched on his stool. Um, and then and this is this is the, the point at which Mitchell descri- uh, demonstrates the tunnel strategy for for Pac-Man. Uh, ah, right. Yeah. yeah, it's a, yeah. yeah. Um, then we go to Roy. They Schill. spend their whole life in the tunnel, by the way. Yes, they do. Uh, speaking of life in a tunnel, Roy Schilt gives his origin story. How he started playing Missile Command when the game appeared in his dorm at UCLA. Um, and people said, oh, you're awesome. And uh, uh, he decided that he was going to go with the name when a, a woman pinched his rear and called him Mr. Awesome. Uh, this developed into this he's, persona. He's holding the comic up at this Oh, the whole point, time right? he's talking. Yeah, he's holding up the cover of this comic. Um, to the point where you'd think it was a, like a sequence with Michael Scott in the office. Mm, mm-hmm. But again, you know, I'm not seeing... The humor in it. No. He's doing he's, it in real he's life. He's not doing he's it as Michael a laugh. Scott. He is genuinely this guy. And it's something like called the comic book life of Mr. Awesome or something. Yes. I immediately hit eBay up. Did you find it? I cannot find a copy I of it. I think anywhere. I have found his website. And I I have for a long time planned to try and find a way to contact him and see if I could purchase a copy of this. Just because I have to know. I want to copy this. I want to see the full video he made, the Mr. Awesome's Guide to Women or whatever. Mm-hmm. I want to see that. I want that comic. If anyone ever finds like a copy of it somewhere, let me know. Preferably secondhand. I don't like the idea of giving Roy Schultz yeah, money. Yeah, not crazy about that. I, I, I'm more comfortable with making someone feel bad for their mistake or feel better about having made their mistake of purchasing a Roy Schultz comic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but if anyone ever sees a copy online somewhere, let let me know, and I will buy it straight away. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is this is developed into this persona of Mister Awesome that he has. It's this character that Schilt has uh, created, seemingly to bolster his own self esteem, as a, a man that women want and men want to be, um, and then. He- <laughs> Sorry. I know, but it's 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 true what you said. It's just the idea of men wanting to be Mr. Awesome. I can't is... I can't I cannot imagine even 
the worst, like the most insecure man living today, looking at Roy Schilt and thinking, that's the path. Oh, I mean, I can't imagine the men he's hoping to appeal to looking at it and thinking, that appeals to me. Right? Like, I mean, now granted, I have the same problem with mystery. I look at mystery at the hat and I think, really? Like, what What could this man possibly have to say to me? <laughs> I, no. And, and I actually, honestly, I, I, I have a theory about mystery and those fucking hats. I think it's the same strategy that Nigerian prince email scammers use as a filter. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, they write those emails in a manner that are deliberately stupid. So that people who are intelligent enough to see through the scam immediately will see through the scam and they won't waste their time with them. I think that hat is mystery's way of communicating to people, hey, you're probably too smart for this. I'm only looking for dummies. Dummies need only apply. Um, But back to Mr. A. Yeah, back to Mr. A. Cole. Uh, He describes the comic book at this point, which he describes as the most important literary accomplishment in America. (laughs) A pro-immigration story. It might be. It might wind up in a court case one day. It could wind up at the Smithsonian. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking it could sort of be like John Doe's book in seven. Oh god i just had this horrified thought that it's in a time capsule somewhere oh god we gotta dig it up <laughs> it's some some future culture might discover it and not have the context of this movie <laughs> they'll take it as the bible <laughs> oh no roy what have you done awesomeism that will be the the Dominating religion of the next century. Oh, uh, but it's a, it's a pro-immigration story as he describes it. How how immigrants built this country and made it great, which is, I mean, it's kind of refreshing. I had to be honest. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, Mister Awesome, he's not a good man, but he don't want to build a wall. Yeah, I I would hesitate to call him woke. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but at least on this issue, we could maybe see eye to eye until mm. until he describes the most successful immigrant in America, Arnold Schwarzenegger, whom he claims, <laughs> admittedly, with no evidence. Yeah, I mean, let's let's not beat around the bush. What Conrad is about to say is slander from Roy Schilt, Mr. Awesome. This film just has literal slander in it. (laughs) Yes, uh, he claims that Arnold Schwarzenegger built his fortune as a drug dealer and prostitute. And he says, yeah, I'm being serious. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I am surprised that there was not, I mean. Nobody saw this movie. Schwarzenegger's not seen this, yeah. If if he, if ever he did, well, I mean, it was a Sundance selection here. At, at one point, so some people saw it, but nobody bothered yeah. to call up Artie. That's it. Yeah, somehow it's escaped his legal team, <laughs> because there is no way that w- I, I'm surprised it's in there, <sighs> at least without 
like major disclaimers from the filmmakers on top of the usual, you know, views expressed, etc. Yeah. I mean, I guess you can do it. I guess you can, you know, film a third party saying something that slanderous. I mean, it's on them. It's not on the documentarian. Yeah. Yeah, they're not endorsing it. So I guess, I guess. I guess. I guess. I mean, <laughs> Roy Schilt is bold for doing it and committing it to film. <laughs> I, I mean, I just... it. <laughs> stunning. It's a stunning moment. Um, another major event in the life of the players uh, announced at the life photo shoot was an appearance on the nationally televised show That's Incredible. Now, this was a, a late 70s, early 80s variety program um, that was on one of the major networks. They, they, you know, it was like a variety show. They had all sorts of entertainment acts, um, circus performers and musical acts and things like that. And uh, and they did a video game thing. And so a tournament was held. And the top three players who won this tournament in Iowa uh, were invited to play on the show. Uh, The three that won were Ben Gold, uh, Darren Olson, a.k.a. Chris Steele, and uh, Todd Walker. Uh, They appeared on the program where they would play a series of games, including Burger Time. And uh, they described this as being, like, really competitive and uh, like, like their friendships meant nothing in the context of their desire to win this. And so uh, I, I can't remember. I think it might have been um, Ben Gold who hadn't been that familiar with Burger Time and was asking for tips or, or one of them was asking the other two who had played it uh, before and he hadn't. And they're like, nope, you're on your own. Um, shit getting nasty there. Uh Ben Gold does wind up winning, um, owing to a, an error on Todd Walker's part, despite believing himself to be a generally worse player. And uh, he dismisses the world champion Ben Gold label that would follow him in appearances later as being like a whatever kind of deal, which uh, is kind of refreshing. Yeah, honestly, was not that fucked about it. Yeah. Uh, you, know, you look at, at people like Mitchell and Schilt and... Uh, and so forth, who have so uh, Rogers, who have so much of their identity tied up in um, their success at video games. Here is a guy who uh, sort of understands his position. Uh, he he you know, notes that it's like the Olympics. Uh, you know, the winner of the Olympics may not be the best in the world at their sport, but they were the best in the world that day. And yeah. that's a pretty nuanced and and balanced view of it. Um. So February 1983, Walter Day gets a call from a, a call from a man named Jim Riley, suggesting a sort of traveling circus featuring video games, where people in cities would come and meet the players, watch them play, try to beat their high scores. Um, there'd be musical acts and you know food vendors and things like that. It's like a traveling circus that they came up with, and the first event would be held in Boston. Uh, the players would, you know, be brought in, paid to play video games as basically a circus act, uh, paid to tour with it. Air Supply was there, guys. Y'all, y'all remember Air Supply? Air Supply, I vaguely remember them. 
the the players they talk a lot about the contracts that the players were under uh, because there were these provisions that they weren't to misbehave. They had to observe this curfew, and uh, they had rules about how they were to interact with groupies, which was quote unquote groupies in the little shot of the contract that were shown. Uh, it seems like these guard- guidelines were largely ignored based on the photographs that they, they have of the time. Uh, yeah. A lot of partying, a lot of good times being had. Uh, the mayor of Boston made a proclamation uh, that in... Oh, Mayor Dooley. Mayor Dooley of Boston uh, endorsing the event. Uh, unfortunately, it was a complete bust. Uh, the event tra- attracted few visitors on the first day, even less on the second. And by the third day, uh, it was shut down completely. And the players were sort of left hanging, um, had to find their own way home. Uh, mm. Nasty, very unfortunate. And, and it sort of marks a turning point for, for many of them as their dreams of, of playing video games professionally start to fade. Uh we then go with Walter and Bill Mitchell on a little side story trip to Washington, D.C., because one of the other threads going through this is uh, Walter Day is, is working on a book, uh, sort of history of video games type book. And uh, so they're going to go to the Library of Congress to examine their collection of coin-up magazines and newspapers to add more to the historical record. And this is a, a really somber, respectful acknowledgement that our history of video games is going to be largely forgotten uh, if we don't do something to preserve it. Yeah. Um, and there are a lot of great people that are doing work in this space and, and trying to preserve games. And, and game preservation itself is important. You know, the actual software is important, having means to play it. It's so fucking complicated because I think more than any other artistic medium that exists video games were from inception corporatized. Um, yeah. And the, the rules are just so different for it's that. It's an industry largely ruled by people who have absolutely no interest in the artistic side and in preservation and archival. Yeah. Uh, so that's... If there's something to be said for people like this being heroic... Um, you know, day day doing his best to try and make sure that people remember things that mattered and how we got to where we are now with games, uh, both cultural, you know, culturally and and technologically and and how the industry developed and changed. Um, you know, because that's how they'll get us. You know, it's it's it, it, none of the stories that we hear about the industry industry being shit are particularly new. They're novel approaches to time-tested shittiness. Uh, you look at the mistreatment of employees and things like that, and it just goes back to the early days where they were programmers were treated like commodities. That you know they were assets to be maintained by the companies, and they you know kept their employment secret and uh, kept their work secret and things like that. And if the industry could do it now, they absolutely would. And yeah. uh, remembering how things changed, remembering how the industry has forever propelled itself on a track towards what's more profitable for it uh, does matter. And uh, and on top of that, I think, you know, as you said earlier, knowing the people matter. Uh, these they're human beings and uh, they have interesting stories and they have contributed to a great sort of tapestry 
that, you know, let's be honest, is almost entirely going to be forgotten. And yeah. and most history is, and, and that's fine. You know, that has to be expected. But I think we do have to do a better job of of making sure that we remember the important moments and people uh, that happened throughout video games history. So, all right, I'm off my soapbox. Uh, Day at this point reflects... <laughs> and, uh, and after saying all of that now, this is the point at which Day reflects on the guilt that he feels about doing this. <laughs> the guilt that he feels about the time he's devoted to this video game stuff that he feels is less important to the world than the music that he's going to make. Oh, don't worry. Yes. We'll... And he says that. He says it's more beneficial to the world that he focus on music and his novels. Oh, we'll get there. We'll we'll get to we'll get to Dave's music. Mm-hmm. So in Florida, first we need to we need to have a bummer. Uh, Todd Rogers is enjoying a hurricane-related storm. Uh, this is not a metaphor at all. Uh, no, it's a hurricane. <laughs> video of Rogers as a teenager shows him expressing a desire to get into the industry and make his own games. And then the modern Rogers reflects on how it all went wrong. He stopped receiving money from his endorsements over time as the various people who had been paying him went out of business. He describes a difficult marriage with an emotionally abusive wife, a major auto accident where his heart stopped and he had to be resuscitated, uh, the drowning death of his brother, the burning of his house, the running over of his dog by a police squad car. And the later like it's relentless. And the later death of his wife from an overdose. That last one, uh, he wasn't that bummed about. Yeah, no, he was. He was actually okay with. Hey, it. I mean, he he basically described. I, I I don't remember the exact phrase, but he basically described it as like a weight lifted, like a millstone off his neck. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he said she was very abusive, and he hid the entire video game side of his life from her because, in his words, she would find a way to ruin it. She'd burn it or sell everything. Or, I mean, this guy, again, if anyone's seen Hereditary, it's like that scene in the therapy session. It's really... And they quick cut as well to let you know that there's more. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or at least the more details. I'm going to, hang on, I'm going to just wait for a second. I'm going to go, I think they're doing work downstairs. I'm going to ask them if they can give me half an hour so we can finish this up and and then we won't have a whole bunch right. of noise. All right. Right. Here's the thing. I can't be bothered to edit this because I've got injuries and stuff. So I'm just going to keep talking till Conrad comes back. And that way I can get this up quicker so that I can go and, and not feel like shit. Go watch SmackDown or something. I mean, that will make me feel like shit because it's WWS atrocious. But, you know, I'll get some food in myself and get on playing with that uh, Shadow of the Tomb Raider again, uh, which I've been playing today. Um, that is a game that really, really wants you to remember the wall uh, scramble where you jump on the wall and then press jump again and Lara climbs up the wall a bit. Um I've been playing the game for a little while, not not too far before I had to go and, and record this, but every single time there's a wall you could scramble up, a big fucking tutorial 
reminder occurs on the wall. Um, all of the other reminders have sort of gone away with time as I've played. That one's still there. Um, I remember, I, I think it may have been Kotaku or some other website. Um, they said that you could turn that off and it makes a better experience. I don't know if that's throughout the whole game. Yeah, Conrad. Right here. Yeah, yeah, I can't be bothered to edit this. Oh, okay. Um, because basically, I'm, my body's caning because of my training this weekend. So I just talked oh. throughout that whole thing about Shadow of the Tomb Raider so that it's not dead. Oh, okay, yeah, that, that um, makes sense. Yeah. You'll have a lovely little listen. Yeah, no, I, I just caught the very, very end of it there. So uh, I didn't I didn't really catch it. And, and I think they're doing work on the building next door like right against the wall i'm on so there's nothing i can do about it but uh so uh, i'll try to edit some of that sound out but if i sound a little garbled at points i'm sure it'll be fine it'll be it's fine so back yes back to the sorrow yes back to the sorrow of todd rogers well I mean, after the the passing of his wife rogers felt free to be himself his focus on his loves of games and spiders spiders <laughs> and he sleeps on a floor Yes. But he has yeah, his um, gaming fame, and that's something. And that's like. And a lot of consoles, a lot of classic retro uh, gaming systems. Yeah, he has pretty much ColecoVision. the whole run. Yeah. Yeah, he's got a, a, a lot of classic hardware. Um, but it's, it's, it's that moment that, you know, he, he, the one thing he has that he's proud of is his gaming fame, his success at video games, and, and the notoriety he's gotten from it. And uh, yeah, so J- I think you and I both know what happens there. Yeah, uh, so Joel West and Ron Bailey are uh, reunited, and they have a seemingly easy conversation. Uh, they then complain about Chris Ara, uh, whom you'll remember was Billy Mitchell's uh, counterpart. Yes, his rival, and he exceeded their scores in Berserk, but the manner in which he he has done this, they believe, it plays against the spirit of the game. There is a simple pattern that allows the player to experience the same four rooms on a loop, and they could conceivably endlessly earn points in that way, and it's just an endurance trial at a point. Um, and this is the sort of counterpoint to the earlier stuff about the ingenuity of the whiz kids and and playing track and field and players finding ways to sort of get around the rules of the game to score well uh the other one the the asteroids trick uh, there's a player who would play centipede in the same way and, yeah. and and here we have these two who are just purists who who think that that that's you know it, rather than any means necessary to score the points, uh, even though it's a perfectly legitimate approach, I would think to try to score points because the game is designed that way. You're simply yeah. You know, I mean, one of the guys says that it's you're not playing berserk. Yeah. If you're doing it that like the way that uh, Aira did it, and I I disagree. Yeah. I disagree insofar as. People who are competitively gaming like this are not necessarily doing it to have fun. They're doing it to win. Yeah. By any means necessary. Now, I don't consider manipulating Berserk within the confines of the game, within the confines of the software, to get it to behave in such a way that you will come out on top. Right. 
just how I, I don't consider it cheating to leave that small asteroid in asteroids and just go for the, the flying saucer. Mm-hmm. I do. You think there's still think the electric think, carving knife might be a, a I still far? think the electric carving knife is bullshit because <laughs> that is not within the confines of the yeah, game. Yeah, I would agree to that. That is, you know, it's the electrical equivalent of steroids almost. It's getting an unfair exterior advantage. Right. It's entertaining, um, but it, it's not something oh, that yeah. I would seriously. Uh, yeah. I w- it's fun, but you're literally not playing the game. Right. Your carving knife is playing the game. <laughs> Um, you're just holding it till the batteries run out. Uh, whereas discovering something within Berserk that can be exploited, similarly to how speedrunners can, you know, get through walls and, and skip whole portions of games. Yeah. That requires both ingenuity and still working within what the game allows you to do. And I think to argue that, especially considering competitive gaming is all about in many ways exploiting the software. That is, it comes across as pure sour games. Yeah, that was exactly. Basically, you played it wrong. Yeah, that's exactly how I would have described it as sour grapes. And um, and this is the first uh, inkling of get off my lawn that we start to see in the film. Um, everything has been largely, you know, enthusiasm for video games and what it was doing and what they were doing in video games. And now we start to see the fall. Um the, the pair of them work together to fix Joel's Berserk machine and, and never succeed. And then all of these players start to discuss the shift in arcades towards games which allowed the player to continue play for an additional quarter, which uh, destroyed the skill-based style of play that they were accustomed to. Uh, in the original cut, the, the Cindy Lauper song Money Changes Everything plays here. Um, they do have a pretty good sound alike here uh, in, in its place. And... Um, I don't, I don't know if I'm wrong about this, but I always seem to remember that in instances where you used a second, toy to, a second coin to continue, it restarted your score from zero in almost every arcade game I can remember playing that had that feature. Um, but I could be wrong about that. Uh, Moon Patrol was the first example of a game that allows you to continue. Uh, the, they continue to talk about how the games changed to be things they didn't like. Uh, became, as they put it, less creative, and then go on to complain about how no one wants to see an Egyptian's lion's head going up against a ghost or something. That is a, a direct quote, and I don't understand how you square saying the shit's less creative and then yeah. describe that. Um, we see the adult men playing modern games in a modern arcade and looking confused. Uh you know, they complain about fighting games. They say that uh, eventually undesirables started infiltrating the arcades and they didn't want to... I mean, and then they cut to a clip of a film of like a biker gang member with a knife saying it's my turn. I don't think that happened in real life. I don't, I don't life. think that happened, yeah. I think that's just in films. So it's... Um... Yeah, it get, it it's it's it suddenly does a bit sour you on this is like, "Oh, wow, you went you went old man real quick here." Yeah. Um and then home consoles, you know, that's that became where people started to play games. And and it sort of is is the decline, uh the beginning of the end for arcades. They do get their revival in the 90s, but the film doesn't really address that. Um we're shown a montage of closed arcades 
shown with dates ranging from 1982 to 1985. Uh, Twin Galaxies itself closed March 6th, 1984. Um, this is, uh, in the other cut, they play uh, Friends Who've Died. It's a really good punk song. I think that's what it's called. Um, and over this. Anyway, Walter Day fantasizes about his future music career and plays his music, mm. saying it's the most important thing to his heart. Which is fine. It is fine. It is fine it's that that is the most music. important. Yes. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm, you've got to be brutally honest. He's not good. No. It's... If, if it makes him happy, fantastic. Yeah, but. I but I I don't I don't want to tell this sweet man that. <laughs> I want to tell this sweet man live your dream, you know. I I, I don't think you'll ever, I, I don't know that you'll ever get there. Maybe not. Definitely not. Definitely not. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't want to lie to the guy. Is the problem? <laughs> I want to encourage him to continue to have aspirations. <laughs> What was the name of his uh, album, Mellow Mood? In a Mellow Mood. In a Mellow Mood. (laughs) Oh, the... uh, I mean, I say this. If he puts it out, I'll buy it. it. Yeah, I would buy it. Um, The players watch the footage of their Life magazine shoot in 1982 um, and sort of reflect upon how cold it was that day a little more and laugh at each other and, and, you know, it's just a fun time. Fun little montage. Sanders relates the moment of his full spiritual awakening. This is good. He's in the attic above Twin Galaxies when he is visited, when God appears to him. It basically says, what the fuck are you doing with your life? Go to college. Go to a Christian college. So he does, and he becomes a lawyer. Uh, One by one, the other players discuss how they left competitive gaming, went on to lead relatively normal lives for the most part. Uh, Leo Daniels does not consider himself a pimp. Um, They started businesses, not pimping, obviously. Uh, Clearly not. uh, But they got married. Uh, They had kids. Sanders has this brood of four boys, and they're talking about adopting a girl because they'd like a girl, and I'm guessing that they're just not liking their odds. (laughs) and, And they are... Boy, I mean, they're so obviously his kids. They all look just like yeah. him. Yeah, yeah, stunningly so. Uh, the, his, his wife looks exactly like the sort of person I would expect him to marry. Uh, she's a beautiful woman, and, and I'm sure she's lovely. Um, it just, they have the, this perfect Steve Sanders family, as I would envision. Yeah, um, yeah that's a good way of putting it. It is... It is the Steve Sanders' family. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kent Ferries is uh, learning how to speak Spanish because he has a girlfriend uh, that he that lives... I, I don't know what country she lives in. He says it, but I can't recall, and I should have noted it. Uh, but he is he's learning Spanish because she's having difficulty learning English, and they need to bridge that communication gap. Uh, were you listening to, to to the tapes that he was listening to, to what he was learning there? In this, no. Okay, no. So th- there are two scenes in which uh, he is driving, and uh, where Kent is driving around and listening to these tapes uh, to learn Spanish. And in the first one, it's just you know it's him learning Spanish. It's innocuous stuff. And then 
in this second one, it's to kiss, to go down, to undress. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Oh. And and it's just tucked in there, like you, yeah. you, know, you could easily miss it. And oh, and this this just this goes this goes back to something we discussed with the last one of these movies, uh, with King of Kong. In that, I don't think these documentarians go out of their way to make these people look bad. Necessarily. But why on God's green earth would that be, would you not have the, the shame level, I guess? This is one of those things where I do think it's on the documentarians because sometimes a subject needs to be saved from themselves. <laughs> and it's, I mean, it's, there's, I don't know how to feel about it. Like, I don't want to feel bad for the guy I don't want to pity him and I don't know that he's pitiable it's just a weird thing that's happening right there like, yeah and you never know he might have gotten all of the Spanish down and that was the, the last, last bit, bit left. sure but why is that the bit that's <laughs> playing when he's driving in the film it's just <sighs> for the same reason the documentary let us know that those Christmas ornaments were, were out July. in July yeah uh, you know, it's just the yeah. They they want to paint the full picture, I guess. <sighs> Even though occasionally a dick move. Um, let's see where was. It? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, those the the ones without kids. They they seem to have cats. Uh, now, uh, and Walter Day, with no children of his own, sort of served as this paternal figure for a lot of them. And and we see him packaging his referee's uniform in an envelope. And we hear him reflect on how video games brought all these people together. And so in modern day, or, you know, Otumwa, which is uh, circa 2005, uh, 2006, we see the players reunited for another photograph, along with some new cheerleaders. I guess they couldn't get the old cheerleaders back. And, uh, and they reflect on how video games shaped their lives and the friendships that they've made through the competitive gaming scene. Uh, finally, Walter sends his jersey to the Smithsonian Institute's video game collection, which the producers inform us in a title does not exist. Uh, get credits, and then post-credits, we get one little extra bit of Joel, Re- Joel West saying he's not sure he, he feels, and he's talked about it with a lot of people, he doesn't feel like uh, Chasing Ghosts is, uh, is a great name for, for the movie. Um, not not the best title for it. And he suggests his alternate idea, coins detected in pocket. Ed describes a seed that they could use, you know, with a a person walking past a arcade cabinet that talks to them in the way that he was first attracted to Berserk as it talked to him. Uh, and it says coins detected in pocket. And then they shot it. <laughs> with him. And it's... Yeah. It's ridiculous. And that's chasing ghosts. AKA coins detected in pocket. Yep. AKA Mr. Activision out of pocket. Well, yeah. I mean, 
that's the... Okay. Well, that's the sad epilogue. That's the sad... I mean, first of all, did, did you like Chasing Ghosts or not? I think I know the well, answer. Well, I love this movie. I... It's a very good I film. I wish it were... I wish you had the version that I had seen. I wish people... Oh, definitely. Uh, ...could see the version that I'd seen. Um... Because not just for the great scene, but I imagine the music would have added a lot more weight it, to it. As it well. adds a ton. Um, it is. It's much more effective in that form. And I, you know, I'm not saying it, it, it. You know, you should seek it out. But I am saying that I know it's floating around, and you can find it if you want to. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's great. Uh, it it provide. I mean, they are interesting people. Uh, it's it takes a pretty unflinching view of them, but it is still sympathetic on some level to everybody involved. I don't think it goes out of its way particularly to mock them. Just in some cases, they're just. I'd say it's a bit. It's a bit snidey sometimes. At, at points. At points. Yeah, I mean the, I, I can see how from some perspectives that the the Christmas in July thing is seen as snarky. For me, it's just but at like the same time. Yeah, I mean, again, I don't know. I mean, I think I think I it know. is. I think it illustrates an aspect of who Todd Rogers is. I mean, that's the thing. Like, some of these elements in here do come across as snidey, but maybe there's no other way to communicate it, right? Because these people are all so earnest and genuine in their feelings on all of this stuff, and I mean, let's be honest, a lot of it is. You know, when, when looked at from outside their perspective, comes across as silly. And that that doesn't mean that it is, uh, or necessarily that it should be treated as such, but I do think that it's hard to look at a lot of what these people say and do and not feel like they're taking it too far. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we've probably fallen into the same trap here. With this podcast, it's it probably hard for us to have talked about it without sounding, at least in some manner, mocking. Right, and I don't. Yeah, and I don't want to mock these people really because I actually have some of them deserve some it. Of them deserve, Roy, Roy Schultz deserves, deserves it. it, but but a lot of the people in this, I have a tremendous amount of respect for. You know, I think Bill Mitchell's kind of a, a prick, but I can't deny his ability. I mean, yeah, that that's no matter what he did to his legacy in the end, and. He was always one of the best. And, and, and here's a, a postscript, further postscript. Uh, in the time since we recorded our King of Kong episode, Billy Mitchell has done a live Donkey Kong million point game. There you, you go. Know, uh, the man still has it. Uh, so, uh, you know, and that's not going to save his Twin Galaxy scores or anything like that. But uh, there's, you know, he could do it. You yeah. know, Um uh, so we want to talk about the uh, the really sad epilogue to uh, Mr. Tragic. Movie. Yeah, well, Todd Todd Rogers, prior to Billy Mitchell's uh, scores being struck, uh, Todd Rogers was targeted, um, and and it was simply found that it it's not even possible on a, a on a mathematical level to achieve some of the scores that Todd Rogers did uh, in playing Barnstorming, and there's another game called Drag Race. Uh, specifically where you can see video comparisons that people have made pointing out and, and doing the math. And I think it was Ben Heck, actually, that, that did a bunch of, of research right. uh, into the the design of the game and uh, found that it was not, not physically possible. So Mr. Activision 
who in this film basically asserts that this is the one thing that he has as his gaming record has now had that too uh, tarnished and taken from him. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I just. <laughs> I mean, what more could be done to the guy? That's when you see the the laundry list of horrors that are described in this film. I mean, that really is the last... It's the last nail. There's nothing left to take from the guy. No, and, and, and it's hard to... I mean, I'm saying if he cheated, it should be taken absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm not condemning anyone here. I'm just saying... After, but after everything, wow, after everything, life. for the last thing that you had to be built on that and fall apart. Yeah. That's, um, yeah, it's, it's incredibly tragic. Um, I, don't, I can't have sympathy for that aspect of it, I no. guess. But, um, but God damn. Sympathy for the man is... Is different from sympathy for the With act. that existence, yeah. yeah. Yep. Uh, but yeah, so that's... Uh, that's Chasing Ghosts. And, and That is Chasing Ghosts. It's, I think it's a, a film everyone who has even passing interest in the history of video games should watch. Um, the people are fascinating... It's well edited. Um, uh, it's it's great. Please please watch it. It's on Amazon. Go watch it. Yeah, definitely. So what are we doing next time, Jim? Arcade. 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 Written by David Goya. Directed by Albert Pune. Pune, I think. I'm not sure how that's pronounced, but um, and based on distributed. a based on a story by Charles Band. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, released in 1994 in the US, 93 in Germany, and distributed by one of my favourite distributors, Full Moon. Full Moon Entertainment, makers of the Puppet Master films and many others. Yeah, as soon, as, like, soon uh, as we found out Evil we had Bong. an excuse to watch a Full Moon film. <laughs> it was like, oh shit, we got to yeah, do that. I'll, I'll take that. Um, I've not watched Littlest Reich yet. We were talking about the the new Puppet Master, the Littlest Reich, yeah. uh, earlier. It's on Amazon. It keeps popping up in my recommends because it knows what I want. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna watch. So that. we we will watch Arcade. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me have a look at the tagline. The game wants to play with you. Oh, delightful! Fucking hell, that sounds like it's gonna really creep me out with all of its spookiness. <laughs> so, Arcade. The film. <laughs> and uh, that's that. That's that. Thank you all for listening to our little podcast, What We've Done. Um, if you want to follow Conrad, you can do. It's on Twitter, at ConradZimmerman.com. And I, that, that's it. Uh, I'm, I'm also uh, going to be on Dice Funk. Oh, of course, uh, yes. The podcast, Larkate Dale, also from uh, the Podquisition, is on that show. She's a delight on there. I'm joining the cast for their fifth season. It is a uh, Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition uh, adventure podcast. We're going to go play characters. This, is, this season is space-themed. And I am I have listened to past episodes. I haven't listened to a whole season myself. Uh, and it's not necessary that you do if you want to just jump in now uh you can do that but the first episode of that's going to release on sunday dice funk go check it out awesome yes indeed and you know what the bollocks i put on the internet um we'll see you next time uh you know roughly about the two week mark for arcade goodbye Bye.